Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not be even named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. In trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is the word of the Lord. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Thanks, Shelby, my awesome wife, for reading for us today. I'm excited to be with you. If I haven't got, had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Taylor. I have the privilege of uh, leading our student ministry and uh, just being on the team here at Generation is literally probably one of my favorite things. So uh, on behalf of our whole team, whether you're watching online, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, but you've heard this several times already. We are in a series on the book of Ephesians, where today we will look at uh, the beginning of chapter 5, or half of the first part of chapter 5, with verses 1 through 17. And we've learned a lot. Ephesians is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I feel like even through this series, from hearing all the the rest of the guys teach each week, that I've learned even more uh, that we can apply to our lives uh, with what Paul was writing and teaching the church at Ephesus. And I feel like even preparing for this week that I learned something new, perhaps to take even the issue of Paul writing uh, this letter to a a different direction a little bit, but uh, most importantly, a better understanding of what the message is that Paul is writing to the people of Ephesus. And so this beginning of chapter 5 is a great segue or a continuation of chapter 4. Uh, I think it could have actually just been one big chapter, but uh, for the sake of all the information, I'm glad it's not. And uh, so we're going to take some time uh, pretty slowly and go through this first part of chapter five. And I want to challenge you to kind of keep that 
open mind because what you're going to hear next week uh, with Pastor Adam really puts what we're learning today uh, as kind of the foundation and bad, uh, bedrock of what we're going to learn over the next uh, two weeks, or three weeks as we close out this series. Before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. Father, we have the opportunity to be here as a church family, to dig into your word, to spend time in your presence. So I pray for deeper revelation of your word. I pray that we learn something different, but most importantly, uh, we get to just be with you, God. And so we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And so like I mentioned, uh, we could continue uh, in chapter four and really how chapter four ends. Uh, But I, I learned something kind of interesting. Even this morning, I happened to wake up way early than I ever do, because I'll be honest, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with my snooze button on my phone, and so usually uh, I wake up, get ready, and come straight here. So uh, I got up, and the only thing I really knew to do after I'd read over my message a little bit and prayed was walk my dogs. And so we headed out uh, in my neighborhood. It's really dark on some streets, and so I had headphones in, and it added to the anxiousness I had because I couldn't hear if someone was coming up behind me. So I guess it made made it fun, but it just felt so good outside now that you just want to get out there. Uh, but I was thinking about how I felt the last couple of week, uh, last couple of days. A lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. I'm sure we've all turned on the news at some point. We know everything that's going on. And as I'm thinking about what I'm fixing to share to you and just preparing in my head, I couldn't help but think and feel like God was saying, I've got it. That if you want to see something change, God has it. God is showing up. He's going to show up. And we can learn that, even apply that to today with the topic that we're going to talk about. And that phrase, what we're going to look at and what we're going to talk about is the word imitate. And what does it mean to imitate God? In Ephesians 4.32, how the last chapter ends, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so you could, if, you were, if we were to just stop the message right now, and I could say, hey, if you want to know how to imitate God, a great start would be to apply these ingredients to your life, that you're kind to one another, that you're tenderhearted, that you're, you're quick to forgive as Christ has done for you, as Christ forgave you. Simply put, if we treat people the way Jesus treated us, then this world would be a lot better place. Would you agree with that? So this is a good starting point as we together answer the question, what does it mean to imitate God? And that's exactly where we start off and how it sets the framework for our discussion today. Ephesians 5.1, the very beginning, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in the Amplified Version, it explains it even deeper. It says, therefore, become imitators of God, copy him, and follow his example. As well-beloved children, imitate their father. And so it's important to see what this means to imitate, that we are to live our lives as if God was living his life on this earth. That we are to imitate him, treat people, serve people, love people the way that God has simply loved us. That's what it means to imitate God. This was something that Paul felt very important to teach 
a lot in his letters, even outside of our book of Ephesians, in his other let, two of his other letters, he mentions the word imitate four times. 1 Corinthians 4.16, it says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And well, you might say, well, he's not saying be imitators of God. He's being imitators. It says be an imitator of me. But then he goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So you have someone like Paul. Mind you, is writing this from a jail cell, right? By all accounts, we could, we could expect that most of us, if we were in Paul's shoes, if not all of us, we certainly wouldn't be thinking about other people. It definitely people in another country, way far away from where you are, I seriously doubt we would be thinking about them enough to write them a letter so that their life could be better or closer to God when I would probably be trying to figure out how the heck am I going to get out of this prison, right? But Paul, imitating God. Outside of Jesus, I think Paul is the best example we have about what it takes to imitate God. We know about Paul. We know where Paul came from before his Damascus encounter. But yet here we are, a man that got it right when it came to imitating God. As it carries on in 1 Thessalonians 1.6, it says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13 and 14, it says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Jesus, that are in Judea. And so when you think about, again, imitating God, and you think about the example that Paul continuously set in every letter he wrote, he's pinpointing specific issues that if, if his audience can overcome these issues, then they could experience God in the fullest way possible. And that's what he wants for us today. So uh, if you look in the original language, it's on your notes. Uh, the word uh, imitate comes from the word mimite, which is where we get the word mimic. And you think of what mimic means, and you jump back to Ephesians 5.1 in the Amplified Version, it makes it a little more obvious that we could copy God, that we should live our lives the way that Jesus lived his lives, the way that God's word says we ought to live. So we're going to get to that in just a few moments. But one thing that's important to notice is what it says at the end of verse 1, as beloved children. If we are to imitate God the Father, then we have to understand kind of that relationship between a parent and a child. I don't know if some of you have young kids in here, but you learn really quick that you have to be really careful about things you say around them because they're going to go say it somewhere else. They're copying you. They copy your attitudes. They copy the good things, the bad things. Like just two Saturdays ago, I was watching football. It's my favorite thing to do on Saturdays. I don't think that's anything new, if you know me. But I was watching the Alabama game, and I got real frustrated as if I had any control whatsoever of this game. 
I'm standing in my living room in Pensacola, Florida, yelling at a bunch of people in, uh, I think at that point, Texas. Like they could do anything that I was saying. And I'm not going to say what I said. It wasn't good. But um, again, I'm really trying to help, this, help Alabama win from here. And uh, my three-year-old daughter, if you know Olivia well, she, uh, I don't know where she got it from. It certainly wasn't for me. But uh, she's a little spunky, and she's got an attitude. And she will tell you real quick uh, that she's in charge. And so as I'm yelling at the TV, she interrupts my passion by getting on to me and saying, Dad, you can't say that. You shouldn't say that. It's just a game. I'm a three-year-old, right? My three-year-old. And I got really convicted after that because it reminded me of other times where, you know, there's been times where Shelby and I would be driving down the road and the girls are obviously behind us in their car seats and we think we're having an adult conversation. And then here comes Olivia. What does that mean? Why would you say that? Or repeating what we said. And so it's powerful to understand that when it comes to mimicking something in this world, you could ask yourself, are you imitating the world and what the world has to offer? Are you imitating God and what God has to offer the world? Because if we we have a choice, mimic the world or mimic God, live for the world or live for God. So I've entitled this message, What you see is what you get. And so if I were to reword that, when people, what do people get when they see you? The way you live your life, the way you carry yourself, the things that you're doing. Do they see God that's evident in your life? Do they see the power of the cross and what the cross did, the redemptive power of the cross? Do people see that in you? Because if they don't see that in you, it's not necessarily that you're doing something wrong, but you're also not really doing anything right, especially if you're a Christian. We're going to dig into that today, but I can go ahead and tell you that when I've studied this chapter, the thing that's jumped out to me the most is that perhaps the real issue with this letter in Ephesus wasn't just to encourage them to run away and ignore the teachings of false teachers, or wasn't just to remember their first love, but perhaps a lot of them were living with one foot in the world and one foot with God. That a lot of them wanted to do right, but maybe they didn't know how. Maybe they didn't feel like they could because of what was going on in their life. Or maybe even a lot of them kind of lived the same life that the rich young ruler lived and was unwilling to let go of things so that God could have complete control of their lives. Obviously, it was something important, or else they wouldn't have been getting a letter, right? We mentioned a few times that if Paul was still around, America, the Western church, would have already gotten a letter. So if we are, as the church, supposed to live lives individually and as the church to require us not to get a letter, we could assume that there's probably some disconnect from the church at large in imitating God the way that we should. Because it doesn't take a scientist to realize that even within Christianity today, that there is a lot of stuff that's wrong. 
There's even what they call beliefs in Christianity that cannot be further from the Word of God than it is. So it's time that as a church, we imitate God. Because I can tell you, it's blatantly obvious that the world around us is getting darker and darker and more evil and more evil. And you know what that's doing? It's bleeding the line of what the gospel is. When the church is starting to look more like all the evil going on, we're doing something wrong as a church. As the big C church, as a body of believers, we have to stand firm and imitate God in everything that we do because if we're ever going to change the word for God, we have to look like God. We can't change the word for God if we're unwilling to look like him. And so Paul gives us, and he's passionately writing this letter to them, to understand, if you're going to do what I'm telling you to do, it's not just because I'm telling you, it's because of who God is. You have to imitate God. And so another thing that uh, I like about Alabama football, I haven't been to it in years, is that they have a thing uh, on home games called the Walk of Champions. If you're a fan of another team, I'm sure they have something like this where it's where a bunch of adults uh, that probably should be doing something else stand four hours before the game starts just to watch the football team walk in. I get it. I know it's ridiculous. But every team's got it. And at Alabama, when they call it the walk of champions because all the great players throughout history cemented their hands and their footprints and their names are on it, and it's just part of the legacy of this school. But when it comes to spirituality, there's also a walk of champions for us as believers. And if we're going to live, li live our lives the way the ultimate champion, Jesus, wants us to live, we have to look like that. When, when I was in college, our coach would tell us, I don't care what you do. Where you go, he was referencing parties and things like that. But if you wear anything with our school's logo on it and you happen to get in trouble or do something stupid, then you're in real big trouble on the baseball team and in the school. And so a lot of us thought it would be a good idea. Like, why don't we just turn our shirts inside out so you can't see what's on it? Ridiculous, I know. But it worked. But that can't be how our faith is. We can't just cover things up so that we hope we still look like God. We can't just cover things up and because we hear this phrase, imitate God, we can't just say and allow the normal things that we should be doing as believers to cover up what we're doing. Your faith isn't meant to stop at your church attendance. Your faith isn't meant to stop at how much you know about the Bible. Your faith is for other people. That's why it's so important, I feel, that Paul started with imitate God as kids imitate. Because as parents, if anything I've learned, it's my job to imitate God for the sake of my kids. Where do, as a kid, where did your faith start for most of you? Your parents' faith, what they believed. You went to the church that they went to before you were born. And so as a parent, too, it's important to know that if that stuff isn't important for you, it's definitely not going to be important for your kids. 
if you have to choose between doing stuff that's just fun or doing what we need to do as believers, it's not going to be that important to your kids either. This is the same message. Paul's like saying, hey, wake up. This is important. You're not going to get it right all the time, but your goal is to imitate God, not so you just look like a good Christian, but so that we can change the world for the better. We try so hard to sound smart and do the right thing and serve every way we can till we're blue in the face, but we're, we haven't said anything about God to anyone else. We're going to get to that. But this walk of champions thing, I think if we add these three things to our lives, then we can begin to step into what we're going to learn next week and how we conclude this series and how we can even realize that there is work to be done as a follower of Jesus. And that work isn't just for you to keep your faith to yourself. So we're going to look at what it means to walk in love. We're going to look at what it means to walk as light and what it means to walk in wisdom. Because these are the three key things mentioned that Paul follows up, be imitators of God. And if we do these things, then I think we will be on the right track. And I wanted to kind of, for importance sake, or to make sense sake, I wanted to rearrange these things, but that would be rearranging some passages in the Bible, and I don't really feel like that's right. So uh, the middle one, walk as light, makes the first one and the last one possible. Okay, So we're going to get to that in a second. The first one in your notes is to walk in love. And I don't mean like this fairy tale love, like we turn on the Disney princess movie and we know what happens. But I mean loving people the way that Christ loved us. He gave his life for us because he loved us. He wasn't even in that moment asking for anything in return. That is the love that I'm talking about, sacrificial love. Because the truth is, We can love people and not be a follower of God. We can love people and be generous. We can love people and help people out and serve. But just because you love people doesn't mean you know God. So how does that, how do we do that? And how are we going to imitate God if we can do that without him? Well, when you know and you read even in the New Testament that it says God is love. So could it be that if you're not a Christian and you're loving on people, you're still not loving them the way that they ought to be loved because you're absent from God? I want to share God's love with people, not just this superficial worldly love, if that makes sense. So Ephesians 5.2, it says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And I know this sounds kind of self-explanatory or that it's a common sense thing because, like, isn't love the essence of Christianity? Like we just mentioned, like it's love that what put Jesus on the cross. He loved us so much that it wasn't, I hope that I'm going to die on the cross and know that they're going to love me back. He did it anyways. And so it's important to understand that when we walk in love, we have to walk in sacrificial love, meaning that we're not going to get 
anything in return. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Nothing in return. So this is a starting point for us, right? You, we, you could, if you've sat in any kind of discussions about Scripture and opinions, you've probably heard the whole debate between faith and works, right? You could go a million different directions. But Paul also starts off chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians by saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So there's a lot of action that's going in, but when we do lives separated from God's love, then none of this stuff matters. So what does it mean to walk in love? It means to give people God. What do people get when they see you? The second thing, and we're going to spend most of our time here, is that we walk as light. Now I want to reread this whole passage to you, uh, but in your notes there's just a couple verses pulled out, and we'll, we'll jump back into that. But it says, but... Uh, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes, comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, and this should be in your notes, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is a shameful it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. And so what does it mean to walk as light? It's interesting how Paul kind of refers to darkness and light as if it was a person. He's not just saying, hey, you're walking in darkness, you need to walk in light. He's saying, you are darkness, and you need to be light. So we know that darkness is simply the, the absence of what? Light. <coughs> Excuse me. So if darkness is the absence of light, and this pertains to us in Scripture and how Paul is encouraging us to live, could we better understand that Paul is saying, you are darkness, and the only way to be light is Jesus living through you. That you were born into a dark world, 
You were born into sin. So the only way out of sin is to be reborn through light. Jesus. So you kind of see how it's uh, personified and kind of almost created to be a person or explained as a person that if we're going to live as light, we need to allow Jesus into our hearts so that we are able to step out of being darkness. And even if you think about how you're supposed to lead people and love people, is that you can't avoid the darkness. You can't avoid the person that's in darkness. You avoid what's making them dark. Because how else are you going to evangelize? How else are you going to share Jesus with people if you avoid them? Jesus isn't saying you need to just run from them. Yeah, he's saying you don't need to be with them. You don't need to do the same things that they're doing. But it's just like when Jesus went with Matthew after he called him to a dinner with all these sinners. He went to this dinner with darkness to pull them into light. Does that make sense? And so it's important to understand that Paul is really addressing several big things that if we could step out of, we're able to live as light. He brings up foolish talk. In today's world, in Christianity, there's a lot of foolish talk. One of my biggest things that frustrates me is like if you were to line up 10 Christians in front of this stage, I guarantee you each one of their beliefs would be a little bit different. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's almost like the blessing of being and able to have our own interpretation of Scripture also creates the curse. Because if someone walks off the streets, never heard about God, and asks three people, they're probably going to be told three different things. That could bring a lot of confusion. In the theology world, I have a small group on Mondays. We get together, drink coffee, and literally talk theology. That's all we do. It's my favorite time of week. But that can't be where your faith starts. If I'm going to be light to someone else, my goal shouldn't be to outsmart the person I'm debating with. My goal shouldn't be to sound like the smarter one. If the only time I'm talking about Scripture is to prove myself smarter or right to the other person, then I'm missing the whole point of Christianity. That's not saving anyone. If I'm imitating anything by doing that, I'm imitating myself. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we wanting to debate Scripture more than share Jesus with people? And if we are, I'm sorry, that is a problem. Because our job is to imitate God, not imitate us. So foolish talk. He even says in the beginning of it, don't even think about these things. It's one thing to actually do it, but you're not going to do anything unless you first think about it. If you're struggling with looking at stuff you shouldn't, then the attack or the defense that you should be fighting against that with should start when you are thinking, not after you've been dwelling on those thoughts. Freedom doesn't come after the fact. Freedom comes when you're able to hold your thoughts captive. That is where Jesus works the most because it's going to keep you out of trouble. If you don't, you're giving the enemy a foothold and it's hard to get out of it once you give him a solid place to stand. 
He talks about idolatry. Are there things you're holding on to that you're unwilling to let go of? Are there things that maybe if it's even God's telling you to do something, but you're so worried about something else that you're not even being able to fully experience what it is that you're doing? We had our men's retreat this weekend, and Eric Easley, we were, talking, we were all talking yesterday before we left, and he made a comment that I think fits perfectly here. He said, on the other side of your obedience, there is someone else's breakthrough. If you're holding on to your faith for yourself, I don't want to live my life knowing that I stopped someone else's breakthrough because I was unwilling or unashamed to share what God did for me. That's what it means to imitate God. And there's a passage of Scripture um, in Matthew 5. It's one of my favorite portions of Scripture, but I, wanna, I think that this explains it perfectly. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, it says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So I was trying to think of a good way to explain this, and I remembered that I had these lanterns from uh, this storm that came by our house a few months, I guess a few months ago. We bought these, haven't used them since, so I guess it's a good thing, but when it does, uh, I probably could have taken it to the retreat, but I didn't because I forgot I had it. Um, but when it talks about light, Jesus speaking, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Have you ever been driving somewhere and you, you can see your, at night and you can see the destination off in a distance because you can see all the lights? Or you're driving at night on the interstate and you're trying to get to an exit to get gas. Every, you know you're coming up on an exit because it gets brighter. There's street lights. You can see the light from the gas station signs. It's right off the interstate. If you're driving past the Bucky's, it probably looks like it's daylight around it. But it's such a powerful analogy to evaluate where you are as a Christian, certainly as it pertains to living a life that imitates God. A lot of us, or some people, are just this. They're not on. They're not connected. They don't know Jesus. And then the other, the better extreme, is that everybody can see your light. Everybody can see Jesus working through you. Everybody can see the work of the cross and how it's evident in your life and how you're passionate about sharing that with others. But most of us, myself included at times, live like this. We're on. We believe in God. We go to church. We go to small group. I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. But we're living almost like we're censoring ourselves. Or we're blocking ourselves. That's not how we're supposed to live. Light is meant to be experienced. Light is meant to be used. And if you live your life like you're walking through a dark place and you're unwilling to let the light inside of you shine, then you're never going to be able to, A, experience the fullness of God like he wants you to, 
then you're never going to be able to do what God needs you to do. Does that make sense? So we are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And the result of living our lives with our light shining is other people seeing what God has done through you. We tell our students all the time, uh, when we go to camp, you watch them. Everybody's there for the same reason. It's easier for them to walk into session and lift their hands in worship and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to their heart and go up for ministry time broken and believing for the Holy Spirit to just move and invade their hearts. But the second we come back, they go right back into the normalcy of their life and they're timid and they don't feel like they can or they're worried about what their friends are going to say. We can't live that way. But we can also take off the pressures that it's not about what we can do anyways. It's not our light that's attracting people to the gospel. It's the light of Christ living through us. But if we willingly or unwillingly put the basket over ourselves and only want it for ourselves, then we're not going to experience God the way we should and we're keeping others from experiencing him. And that's why we can't stay there. We can't expect God to move like he needs to. How many of you have found yourselves when you find yourselves in a tough season and you're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? There's a bunch of settings, sorry. Um, We find ourselves asking, where are you, God? If you've looked on the news lately, you're like, man, God, we could really use you right now. But guess what? He's here. You know where he is? Inside of you. I was thinking about this the other day. Like, if we can sit here and ask God where he's, gone, where he's at, but we're unwilling to do what he's asking us to do, how can we expect him to move anyways? Because it's usually in those times where we're asking where God is that we're not even seeing that he's working in the first place. And if we live that way, we definitely can't share what he's doing in our lives with other people because we're so blinded that we can't see it. We have to walk as light. That is the only way that we can continue to do what God has called us to do. It means that when we become light, not by what we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us and what he's now doing in and through us, that is the very essence of imitating God with our lives. The last thing is obviously pretty Self-explanatory as well. Number three in your notes is walk in wisdom. And this is what I mean by like, you can love people, you can be smart and be completely far from God. I don't know if you've ever listened to people in the science community. Most of those guys don't even think God exists, but they would probably say they're real smart and they're wise. You think about Steve Jobs and things he said about God and how he didn't believe in God or other scientists when you would say that they're really smart. I mean, every one of us is carrying around a device that came out of his, an idea came out of his mind and it makes our life better. That's pretty smart. Where I can do whatever I need to do from that phone. I don't know how to do most of it, but I could. Smarts isn't always the best thing. But you have a choice in your life to live in godly wisdom or worldly wisdom or false wisdom. But when you walk in godly wisdom, 
things change. Godly wisdom says whose you are, and earthly wisdom says who you think you are. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, look carefully then how you walk, and not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because these days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You want to know what the will of the Lord is for your life? Make him known. Don't keep it to yourself. It's not a title. It's some business or a a job. It might be part of your purpose. It might be a part of who you are in Christ. But the will of God for your life is to love God and make him known. Not just spend time with God either at 9 o'clock or 10.30 on a Sunday and then go about your week. We belong to God. We have to let people know that we believe we belong to God or else we're never going to see that. It's interesting that Paul says best use of the time. He's not talking about what time it is. He's talking about the time of history that you live in. What are you doing with the time that you're in? We are here for a reason. God is who marked out our boundaries. God knows our life. He created our life. What are you going to do with it? I seriously doubt we're going to stand before God one day and he's going to ask us where we stood theologically. I doubt he's going to ask, hey, how much scripture did you memorize? Or how many small groups did you lead? All that stuff's very important to sustain your faith, but that can't be your faith. God is going to ask you, hey, what did you do with what I gave you in the time that you lived? What did you do with my son? Godly wisdom is believing and trusting that God has it. Worldly wisdom is trying to do it without God. You fall short every time. It might feel like it works. But James 3.17, but the wisdom from above is first pure. If there's a lot of impurity in your life, I can... Guarantee you a good place to start evaluating yourself is the place of impurity in your life. That's not coming from godly wisdom. That's not coming from living your life as the Word of God says you should. But it's first pure, then it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This can even combat from the verse in chapter 4, these ingredients that you must live by in order to imitate God. If you don't have these in your life, there's a good chance that nobody's seeing God through your life. James, 5, James 1, 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So as the band comes up and we get ready to close... What does this mean for us? It means that if we walk as light, we are able to love people the way that God did and gain and grow in the wisdom that only God can give. I don't know about you, but I want to get to heaven and hear the job well done. It's hard for me, to be completely honest, to let go of control sometimes. And to let go of some things that I want to hold on to. 
We're getting ready to go on a trip to Romania. Shelby and I have been married for almost seven years. And this is the longest I've er I'm ever going to be away from them. And it stresses me out. Especially at the age of my kids. You understand if you have young kids like that. But 10 days, I'm going to be in another country, way far from them. I can't do anything for them except FaceTime. <laughs> but it's not, I can't control that. If I try to control that, I'm going to miss what God's trying to do in my life and the lives of the people we're going to minister to in Romania. They're, like Eric said, breakthrough on the other side of your obedience. So let me ask you this question again. What do people get when they see you? Do they see someone that is reserved when it comes to their faith? Or do they see light shining through you? Do they see Jesus shining through you? And I'll close with a story. Um, quite a few years ago, me and some of my teammates went to this, uh, I guess, college version of a lockout or lock-in. It was a worship night. Terrible idea looking back on it because it was from 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. I don't know that anyone wants to really do stuff like that. I know I couldn't do it at all now. Um, you should see a bunch of guys sitting around a fire trying to stay up later than everyone else. It just doesn't happen. But this guy, my group leader, he told a story about having a dream one time. And if you've ever been involved in college ministry or was in a college ministry, there's one question that's asked all the time. And it's like, can I drink and still be a Christian? That's how it was at Alabama and Auburn anyways. So he goes into this story, and I'm not telling you this to even answer that question. We have our own convictions. We can figure that out on our own. But for the sake of the story, he has this dream where he's died, and he's in line getting into heaven. So I'm not saying that any of this was theologically sound, just a dream. In the line he was in, there was another line. And he's looking up ahead and he sees a guy that looks familiar. And then they make eye contact. He's like, oh, this is the guy that was in my small group at church when I was in college. And he starts coming at him and he's like, maybe I can embrace him. Maybe I can give him, give him a hug. <coughs> but instead, the guy's really mad at him. And he's sad, and he's upset. And he says, I told you what I struggled with. And I was really struggling one night, and I went downtown, and I saw you at a bar. And you knew that I really struggled with that. And I ran from God when I saw that. Again, I'm not just focusing on that one thing. Maybe it's something different from you. People watch you. And I can tell you right now, the world we live in today thrives on when the church falls short. We can't give them a reason to wait on the church to fall short. If there is a time for us as believers to imitate God in everything that we do, the time is now. So whatever it is that you're struggling with, Obviously, don't live your life in fear of what people see and what they think about you so that you can mess up their faith. 
But if you are having those thoughts, then maybe you shouldn't have that in your life in the first place. I mean, Paul's telling us to not even think about those things. But on the flip side, maybe some of those things is what's keeping you from running to God in the first place. What do people get when they see you? What you carry, each of you, what you carry is what will change the world. His name is Jesus. If you don't know Jesus today, what a day to start. So as we pray, you can go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to jump back into worship. Right there at your seat. Call out to God. Some of us, it's time that we become light. We become like Jesus. Pastor Greg and his team is going to be down here to pray. If anybody wants to pray with them, whether it's for salvation or whether it's just to stand in agreement for something. But don't let today go or pass without allowing the light of Jesus transform your life. So, Father, we give you this time. As we end this service, we all go about our different days, our different directions. Lord, let us stand up now and and not be timid for what you did for us. What you did for us changed the world. And it will change the world today just like it did all those years ago. But now we have the opportunity to be image bearers, to walk as you walked. Help us to be firm in that. Help us to surrender that, to grow in that. And if there's anyone in here that's watching online or in the room presently right now that doesn't know you, Father, I just pray that you begin right now to minister to their heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that you begin to break their heart so that God can come in and mend it back the way that he wants to so that they can experience love, that you're not holding what was spoken over them, what mistakes they made, what they're struggling with this very moment is perfect for you to handle because it's our weakness or your strength that's made perfect and our weakness. And so we take charge. We take responsibility now to be light bearers, image bearers of who you are into this dark world. And Lord, we give you all the glory. We honor you, Lord. We are nothing without you. And as we go into worship, I just pray that you continue to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.